0: I definitely, for a while, had both resentment and when you have those kinds of hardships, and I mean, it then leads to this bigger question of what is fair? Why do we think life is supposed to be easy? All these other existential concepts.
1: Hello, my friends. Welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefhofer. And in case you're new to the show, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. It's a show that explores the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in all of our lives because, truth be told, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I'm no exception with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. But I created this show because individually and collectively, we're so grief illiterate, and that is causing us all so much harm. So I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief, one conversation at a time. I'm so glad you're joining me. Today's episode is brought to you by Eternova. There are so many little and big ways we carry our person or our pet with us in the wake of loss. Each act of service we do in their honor, each remembering ritual we perform, each story of them we tell of them helps us do just that. The team at Eternova is on a mission to help all of us remember our loved ones remarkably. They've created a way for us to celebrate our remarkable loved ones by turning their ashes into a diamond. You can learn more about them by visiting www.eternova.com. Oh, and don't forget to check them out at Eternava on TikTok, too. I'm so thrilled to bring you a conversation with my new friend, Marissa Renee Lee. Marissa shares what it was like to be a teenager and young woman caring for her mother who was ill, first with MS and then breast cancer, in the most formative years of her young life with her mother dying just a year after she graduated from Harvard. Marissa and I explore how her CEO personality was helpful in keeping her family together and getting things done, and yet likely delayed her inevitable need to face her grief. Marissa also shares some of the surprising experiences she had with workplace culture around grief, from Wall Street to the five years she spent in the Obama White House. I absolutely feel a kindred spirit with her, and I can't wait for you to meet her. I'm also excited to share that soon after this episode airs, her book, Grief is Love, will be available. Listeners, I am so excited to bring you this conversation with Marissa Renee Lee. She and I have been connecting, I think, off and on over the last year. I'm a big fan of her work and her wisdom. And Marissa, I'm so excited to say these words. Welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be so much fun.
1: I know. Y'all, just true confession time. I've been nerding out a little bit before our conversation today about all the similarities, really, we've had, interestingly enough, and kind of worldviews and experiences as women, as people have experienced loss, as entrepreneurs. So I'm really excited to explore these aspects of your life and just to share your wisdom and what you've learned with our listeners. So thanks so much for for being here. Absolutely.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah. So I wanted to start our conversation today where I start all of my podcast conversations, and that's inviting you to sort of reflect a little bit on what your earliest memories of grief were in your childhood, perhaps, or your young adult life. And the reason I ask this is... I think we learn grief beliefs by both the explicit and implicit messages adults in our life show in their behavior and their language around loss. It could be death loss or some other kind of loss because, of course, we grieve non-death losses. And we end up with these beliefs. And sometimes those beliefs serve us in our adulthood when we face a loss, but sometimes those beliefs can, I don't know, get in our way. And so I always invite people to sort of like open up and think about what were those earliest grief beliefs? How were the adults in your life showing up for their grief? What do you think you learned from that?
0: Yeah, so that's an interesting question. And I haven't had a chance to dig into this fully yet, but I think that in the Black community, there is less avoidance of grief and death when it comes to children. And like what is and isn't shared. So from my perspective, my earliest memory of grief, my mother had an older brother who I adored. I thought he had the life that, you know, I wanted as a grown-up. He lived with his best friend. He had a dog. And in my mind, at least, every time we went to their house, we had spaghetti and meatballs. So that was the life, right? What more could you ask for? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And then I remember one day, My mom said that he was really sick and he was in the hospital and we were going to go see him because we might not get to see him again. And I would have been four or five, I think five years old. And so we went and we visited him in the hospital. And I just remember thinking this is sad and heavy, you know, like it like had, it had color to it to me, but the color was all just dark and heavy and sad. And then he ended up passing away. He was a gay man living with AIDS. You know, that's why he lived with his best friend. Like that was the language back then, right? This yeah. was the eighties. Um, yeah. And I remember his funeral. Us little kids weren't allowed to go for the whole funeral, but we were brought in at the end. And, you know, I remember being paraded down the center aisle in this huge black Baptist church to bid farewell to his casket you know like it was it was all very open we then rode with our parents to the burial site and we were expected to be there and to behave and be respectful and i think for me being exposed to death and loss and also i think really importantly the expectation that you show up when these sad things happen not that you avoid them or don't talk to them like i just i think that's so important and then I'll just share another example of this because it was really, really a formative experience. When I was in middle school, my best friend at the time didn't show up for school one day. You know, I can remember going to school thinking, oh, it's weird that she's not here. I then ended up getting called down to the principal's office where they informed me that the night before her father had been in a car accident and he got into a fight with the guy and the guy shot him and he died on his way to the hospital. And this is a man that, you know, I'd known for years. He was a family friend of my parents, like sleepovers at my best friend's house, you know, the whole thing. And I just, I was 14 years old, had just turned 14 years old. And I remember being shocked and overwhelmed. And then the school actually had me call my parents to tell them and to have them come and pick me up. So I know.
1: If y'all could see me right now, I had a little tilted head, curious look there. Yeah.
0: As an adult, I am like, this is one of the many things that we are talking about. We talk about the adultification of Black women and girls, like barely 14 years old. And I'm going to call my mom and tell her that one of her friends
1: has has died, died, was murdered
0: yesterday. Like, what? But let me tell you what my parents did. You know, they picked me up, took me home. As soon as I got into my parents' house mom said you have to call you have to call your friend like you have to call Jillian and i was like what am i going to say you know like what do you and she said tell her you're sorry and she had already started dialing the number and everything so forced to get on the phone express condolences and then we went over to their house as a family and he was jewish so he had to be buried the next day and my parents informed me that i was going to be spending the night with my friend so she wouldn't be by herself And, like, I can remember we were watching 90210, eating Oreos, and my mom calls me and is like, you're staying here tonight, and then you're going to go to the funeral with your father tomorrow. And I just, even now, it makes me cry a little bit just from the anxiety that I felt in that moment. But they didn't mess around. When horrible things happen to people, you show up. And so for me, that ethos around death and grief and being supportive and being open and finding a way to be kind and full of empathy when bad things happen to people, it's stayed with me.
1: Oh, there is so much wisdom (laughs) and beauty about that story and your parents. I know your mom's Lisa. What's what's your dad's name? Sam. Sam. Lisa and Sam. Shout out to the two (laughs) of you, right, for... Really, this is the thing that I'm always trying to get at. It's modeling. So they both in their behavior, but also explicitly. So the implicit and explicit said, we all face hard things. And the way we navigate that is we show up for people in their hard things and trust that they will show up for us. And I loved how your mom was like, it doesn't matter what you say. It's the showing up. You know, I have this line of empathy cards. I always say that it's like people get hooked on what is the right word. And I think it's because we assume we're going to be able to fix them with our words and you can't fix somebody's grief. You can just help them feel less alone. And you know what
0: I always say? And it's something that myself and my supportal co-founder Jackie like really firmly believe. It's not the people who said the wrong thing that sticks with you over time after these terrible things happen. It's the people who said nothing. It's the people who you expected to show up who didn't show up. That you will always remember.
1: Yes. Well, you, me, and Jackie share that belief for sure. I always say that not saying something is saying something.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's sort of the expression I use. So if you get so hooked in your, and because we, and you know, we all do the best we can. So I'm not kind of judging, but it becomes about you, the yeah. grief supporter. Like when you yeah. get hooked on, like, I don't want to say the wrong thing or you sadness yeah. makes me uncomfortable. And it's like, it's, it's, not like about you. it's not about you. Yeah. Get out of your own way. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to talk about the adultification segment, and I want to talk about Black women, and particularly because you wrote this beautiful piece for Vogue that I think ties a thread there, and we're going to definitely get to that later in our conversation. But I wanted to talk to you. Have you begin to share a little bit about the sort of trajectory of your life that led you to really— Coming to understand as an adult what grief is that led you to do some really beautiful, important work, co-founding a nonprofit, The Pink Agenda, and I can definitely relate. I co-founded a nonprofit Carebox program after the loss of my husband. You've created Supportal, which you just referenced we're going to talk about, and a lot of the work that you're doing, and this forthcoming book, although by the time we air this, it might be out already, Grief is Love, but can you tell me a little bit about your journey of being a caretaker with your mom first, and your mom, Lisa, yep. shout out to the Lisas in the world, <laughs> and just a little bit about that journey and what you sort of learned accompanying your mom in those different experiences of her life up until her death?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in my case, actually, right before my friend lost her father, my mom got sick one day and she never got better. And it took a lot of years, a lot of research, pretty like great internet research, lots and lots of doctor's appointments and tests and everything else. But ultimately, we realized a few years later that she had multiple sclerosis. And unfortunately, because of that whole period of trying to find answers and misdiagnoses, by the time we found out, it had done permanent irreparable damage to her brain. And so I had a sick parent from the time I was 13 until she passed away when I was 25. And in between MS and her death, she was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer a couple days before I graduated college. So I actually took A year off after college to just help my parents figure out how to navigate this very complex health situation. Cancer that had already spread into her bones, plus this other disease that was, yeah, attacking her neurological system. It was a lot. I think at the time, I definitely had moments as a teenager and young adult where, like, I knew it was a lot to be in this caretaker role, but I didn't really. Do anything about that. You know, like I I didn't do a great job seeking out support. Support? Yeah. Or like regular therapy. Like I might go for a little while and then I would stop. Like I just, I wasn't great at acknowledging it because I was just kind of like, well, this is life. That had been my life since I was 13 years old. And it's only now that I'm 38, almost 39, that I can see like, oh, I probably could have used some real help sorting through all of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think there's something really interesting about the caretaker role, especially when you're a young person. Of course, it feels sort of out of order when we end up being kind of the caretaker to our parent, but also at that developmental stage when you are supposed to be sort of individuating and going out on your own and and you're kind of there. I can relate. I don't know that I've shared it before, but my mom went from a very active professional person to basically not being able to get out of her bed for months and after lots of misdiagnosis was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. And in the, my junior senior year of high school, I was grocery shopping and doing laundry and helping out the meals, caretaker. And yeah. Meals and just helping, you know, I mean, my dad was around and we were fortunate enough to have money to have somebody also help do some of the caretaking a little bit. And I don't have any resentment or regrets, but I think that I think we don't always recognize the sort of impact that that caretaking role can have, has on everybody at any age, but especially at that crucial developmental time. When you look back now as you're almost 38, 39-year-old self, what do you notice about not just the hardships, which it sounds like you acknowledge that there were some challenges there. Can you identify or name some of the beauty in having the opportunity to being a caretaker with your mom?
0: So a few things. So you said you don't have any resentment. Like I definitely for a while had both resentment and anger, I realized recently, and not really toward my mom, but like toward the whole situation. Like it just, I think acknowledging that it feels really unfair when you I was just about to say
1: unjust. Yeah, Yeah. like
0: when you have those kinds of hardships. And I mean, it then leads to this bigger question of what is fair? Like, why do we think life is supposed to be easy? All these other existential concepts. But I think in terms of the beauty of it, like, first of all, it definitely made me a more empathetic and kind and somewhat patient person and i just think i got so much time with my mom that i wouldn't have had otherwise if she had been healthy you know it wouldn't have been as much of a priority to spend lots of quality time with her when i was in high school and in
1: college yeah yeah i absolutely appreciate that and just to clarify i did have resentment then <laughs> i'm saying sort of now as a 50 year old i have come to understand that yes there were challenges and there. there there were things maybe that I missed out on but they I do think it helped my mom had been previously a very successful working person and was worked kind of 24/7 so in some ways I got to spend more time with her but also to your point I think I understood I think I gained a sense of empathy and sort of compassion in ways that I maybe hadn't as a 16 17 18 year old
0: totally I also think for me And some of this became something that I had to overcome, but it shifted how I think about marriage and long-term relationships. Because unfortunately, like I saw firsthand the worst case scenario that you yourself have experienced. Like you find your person, you build a life with them, they get sick and they die. And that just, that left a big imprint on me as a young person.
1: Yeah. When we come back, Marissa shares what it was like when her mom died, her instinct to manage and take charge, and frankly, the cost all of that had on her, both physically and mentally. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch Podcast with my guest, Marissa Renee Lee. Hey friends, I just have a quick favor to ask you. If you love the show, after today's episode, please consider heading over to Apple Podcasts, finding the show, leaving a rating, and write a review too. Oh, and if you know someone in your life who's grieving or trying to show up and offer support, why not share the show with them too? Speaking of that, I want to kind of move the conversation along a little bit. you You graduated from Harvard, I think I read, right? And your mom was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Your dad, you know, Sam was around. Did you start to have conversations with your mom and with your dad about how she wanted to spend this last time? Was there a presumption that this was not, you know, curable? So
0: from the beginning, we were told by doctors that her cancer was treatable, but not curable. It had gone too far already. And this you know, this is now going back, gosh, she was diagnosed in 2005. So this is also a long time ago, lots of different treatments available nowadays, of course. My father is the person who was praying for a miracle, like for the cancer to just magically leave her body. I would say until the day she died. Whereas my mom and I were like, okay, We need to make a plan, especially when she stopped undergoing active treatment, because, you know, at least when she was undergoing treatment, we knew that we were kind of delaying the inevitable. And as long as the treatments were keeping things stable, it was good. But then we just reached this horrible period in 2007 where it was just infection after infection and, you know, all sorts of other complications as a result of the treatments. And so by this time in 07, they'd given her six months to a year. So at that point, me being me, I became the CEO of my mother's death and had like spreadsheet with all of the tabs. And I was asking her all of the questions and taking notes on her answers, everything from what she was going to wear for the funeral to pallbearers to what to do with pieces of jewelry A bill that my father might forget to pay, make sure it gets paid, you know, all of those things, because she was still, even with MS and, you know, dying from cancer, she was still like managing like the household budget and expenses and things like that. It was like old school marriage.
1: All right, Lisa. Yeah. (laughs) All right.
0: It was pretty wild. So my dad and I had very different approaches. So like, yes, mom and I had those conversations. And she would always say to me that even though I, I have a younger sister who suffers with bipolar disorder... And so, like, I was very worried about my sister's well-being when my mom died. My mom was most worried about my dad. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, but you know, you're married. That's what wives do. We worry about our partner, too. Yeah. That's a very adult role that you stepped into. I know you were a young adult then, but we joked earlier, you and I were talking about the kind of entrepreneurial spirit and you kind of were... I know I've read somewhere you've, you know, you were running for elected office in grade school. So you've kind of always (laughs) been a person who's kind of take charge. Do you think that looking back now that was there some gift in the sort of being able to at least be of service in that way as you accompanied your mom?
0: I think in retrospect, like. That is one of my coping mechanisms. Finding the things that I can control and do that feel, you know, quote, useful, productive, et cetera. That's how I cope when shitty things happen. I wish that there had been another adult around, you know, like an older adult around who had said, you also need to take more breaks and, you know, maybe consider taking a vacation or getting some more help with therapy or getting medicated. You know, like I had a horrible anxiety and depression and wasn't sleeping and it wasn't being treated very well by my doctors. But, you know, I was a kid, so like I didn't know. So I did the thing that gave me the most peace. And I also now looking back view it as like a final act of love because my mom knew that she could trust me with that information and she could trust me to execute. And so I'm glad that I at least had it and was able to help her live the way she wanted to the last few weeks of her life.
1: Yeah. Marissa, I think that's so beautiful what you just shared, which is sort of the both and, which for my listeners know I'm like, literally my next tech too is going to have an ampersand in it. Like and is sort of... What I value most, but I love that story that you just shared because there was the both and being in caretaker mode, as you called it, CEO mode, had its usefulness. It had a way of connecting you with your mom. It also was, frankly, a coping strategy for the immense anticipatory grief that I imagine that you were experiencing. Oh, yeah. And... It might have also been uh, causing some harm or not allowing you to do some care and healing that you needed. And there's no purpose for us to judge ourselves in the way that we navigate our grief, right? There's no purpose in the judgment. There's just the learning and the noticing so that maybe next time we say, you know, I do like being active for you, let's say. And I'm, I'm one of those people, too. I'm like, let me get in and do some things. And... I know that I have to work hard to do self-care because that's important too. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a really beautiful both and. So you're 20, did you say 25 when Lisa died?
0: Yeah, I had just turned 25.
1: You were young, just graduated from Harvard. You had taken that year off to take care of her. Had you already started Pink Agenda then? Or I had, had, you actually. Okay.
0: So graduate from Harvard, take a year off, spend some time with my mom and dad, and then I ended up getting a job on Wall Street, like at the height of the financial crisis and was basically back and forth between my job in New York City and my parents lived in the suburbs of the city, basically. And what I realized one day watching an episode of Grey's Anatomy after one too many drinks at a work happy hour, (laughs) they were operating on someone who had cancer and like seeing that person's organs, what it actually looks like, like just made me crazy. I lost it and I said, okay, what can I do to be helpful? You know, now that I'm no longer an everyday caretaker, I still have a full-time job to work at, but you know, it's like, (laughs) how can I contribute? You know, I'm not going to quit my job and become a nurse or like go to medical school. Like that's just not, that's not playing to my strengths. I can throw parties and ask people for money, that actually does play to my strengths. And so that's what we started doing in 2007. My mom actually was at the first event, and then she was planning to be at our next party in spring of 2008, but she ended up passing away beforehand.
1: Yeah. Wow. And the peak agenda was really started to do research around breast cancer. Is that
0: So we started it actually as a fundraising vehicle where the money that we raise would primarily go toward research that focuses on like either young women with breast cancer or minority women with breast cancer. We also funded a few direct care service programs that were primarily focused on younger women. But yeah, we funded a number of research grants through the Breast Cancer Research Foundation.
1: Yeah. So here's another example in the sort of through line of your life where you face this very personal, <laughs> challenging thing. And I just, I'm nodding and laughing a little bit because literally me sitting here interviewing you about this, I have a similar story, but you said, I'm doing this work and I'm showing up in the world on Wall Street, but there's something else I'm meant to do. And how can I use my personal experiences and my skill sets to be of service in the world? And thus became Pink Agenda. And i co-founded a cancer nonprofit myself and to help cancer patients. I mean, I've been there. I think culturally in this country, anyways, we over go towards, you know, productivity and kind of like, you know, we're, we're a little crazy in the way too productivity way. And I do think when we have moral distress or we have grief, I do think there is therapeutic value in being of service to somebody else of, you know, doing that. And so I can really appreciate and admire what you did with Pink Agenda because there is, it's not just that you're helping other people, but there's some growth. What do you think you learned about yourself or how your grief began to move in those early years of the Pink Agenda or did it? I don't want to make an assumption.
0: Yeah. I mean, the early years were hard. I think having the work at the Pink Agenda definitely laid the foundation for the grief work that I'm able to do now because I got early practice, like talking about my mom, talking about her journey with breast cancer, like talking about our family, et cetera. But in some ways, I will always wonder if having that productive outlet was somewhat counterproductive because it meant, once again, you know, I wasn't taking the time to do the harder sitting still emotional work. Instead, I was working full time, trying to like do what I could to help support my dad and my sister who were really struggling with their grief, running this nonprofit, dating Wall Street yeah. guys. You know what I mean? Like I was yeah. basically doing almost anything other than really Attending, dealing with sitting in feelings.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sitting like, in the suck, as one of my guests once said, and I yes. love that expression, sitting in the suck. And yeah. you know
0: that's the only way that you really move through it. So part of me wonders if, you know, if I didn't have the pink agenda, might I have been forced to deal with some of that stuff sooner? Maybe, but who knows? And at the end of the day, it's still a functioning organization that's helping people. So it's not like I regret doing it. It's just I'll always wonder if maybe I should have spent more of that time in therapy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Being someone who did both, by the way, I moved across the country, co-founded a nonprofit, raised, was raising my daughter full-time. I was in therapy, but I was doing, I think, you know, again, when I look back, I think there were a lot of ways where I wasn't really, you know, attending to my grief in the ways that I, and I had some trauma related to my grief too. So I wasn't attending to that early on. And that is also a functioning organization. You know, we all do the best we can with what exactly. we have. I think there's there's so much, I call it grief-thiefing. You know, like we grief-compare each other's grief. And we do it to ourselves, by the way, so often. You know, like that criticism. And I think it's important to be mindful. Like, hey, is this approach working for me or not? But there's not really any value in my mind or purpose of criticizing ourselves, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's just interesting. We're going to eventually get be talking about grief as love, of course. But one of the things that I admire again about the through line of your life and your work and your approach. But I think the lessons in particular that you learned from caretaking your mom and then having your mom die is that well, although you were already a decidedly direct person who went after what you want, you came to the conclusion around that time that you were going to work for this newly, I think at the time you decided maybe a person Barack Obama wasn't quite yet President Barack Obama, but you said, I'm going to be in that White House doing that work. And you shared something in the in Modern Loss. You were one of the writing contributors to Modern Loss, which by the way, if you all haven't read that book, I definitely recommend it. They invited some brilliant contributors to contribute to this book on loss. And Is it weird if I read you a passage from your own book? No, I I haven't thought about
0: those words in a long time. I'm excited. (laughs) I mean,
1: it's really, your section is only three pages. And if I had a longer show, I'd read the whole thing because it's all just full of goodness. But you sort of talked about, uh, as this time you're watching your mom sick and die? This is a time where this young upstart Obama guy is making a bid for the presidential office. And you said this, which I thought was really straight on about how we can use, Even the hardest things that happen to us, to make more visible and more clear and more committed, what are we going to go after? Like, what matters in life? How are we going to go after that? And you said, my mother's absence has created a steeliness in me, one that lets me stare down risks and take on assignments that might overwhelm someone with thinner skin. I'm no longer afraid of the impossible. I'm not easily inundated or intimidated. I hire, I fire, I fundraise without fear because I know what real fear feels like. Fear that keeps you up at night. Knowing morning will bring you one day closer to being without the person you love. Fear of the day death knocks on the door and knowing it's your job to help usher mom between two worlds. By contrast, organizing a meeting for the leader of the free world doesn't seem all that hard. (laughs) 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 I mean, I read that book and I was like, Damn. And I just like slap my copy down. Because that is the truth. I mean, I'd love, of oh course, to God. hear about what you learned <laughs> navigating grief in the White House. But the truth is that when we face hard things, when we are faced with grief, whether it's a you know, quote unquote out-of-order loss as losing a child or a spouse or a parent, whatever that loss is, we have an invitation to allow that to help us get really clear. And let go some of the sort of maybe trivialities or worries that we might once let consume us and get really clear about our time here. And not everybody does that or it doesn't always look the same, but it seems to me in reading a little bit about you before our conversation today, that that was another turning point, yeah, yeah,
0: And I would say for me, with my mom's death, it was it's been twofold, and it's kind of shifted over, gosh now, almost fourteen years. Initially, it was a sense of entitlement combined with this, frankly, like fear about my own time. I was just 25 when she died. She had just turned 49 10 days before she died. So that then became the age in my mind. Like, what if you only have until 49? That's only 24 more years. What are you doing? So that became my motivation around everything. Now I think it's more, am I acting in a way that's aligned with my values and what I think I can bring to the world to help people. And as long as I'm acting in a way that is values aligned and focused on doing the things that like I really believe I'm here to do, it's gonna be fine. That's more my framing. Like you don't need to stress and worry. And I mean, obviously sometimes I still do, but I try to remind myself, you don't need to stress and worry about these little things, if you really do feel like, as you said earlier in our chat, you're moving in the purpose that you're supposed to be moving in. And sometimes the things that you're moving toward are going to take a hell of a lot longer than you want them to, whether it's the kid that we have been working on for years or my book that's coming out in April that I decided I was going to write in August of 2008. You know what I mean? Like it may not be on the timeline that you want, But if you know that you are doing the things that you're supposed to be doing here, it makes it easier to do them and like to wait for them.
1: Yeah. Oh, I love so much about that. And I absolutely agree that there's an invitation to sort of get clear about your values and your purpose and how you're showing up in the world. And that doesn't mean, you know, I think people often get confused that we trick ourselves into thinking, then we know what the packaging of that is going to look like, right? Like we get hooked and then life is like, ha ha ha, you know. No, that's (laughs) true. That's totally true. I mean, I think that if nothing else, the pandemic taught us all that, right? And though the packaging or the way it materializes in the world might not be what you anticipated to be. And there's no harm in having goals. Of course, we want to have goals. It's really important to get less hooked on the, Package or the outcome, and more as you said about continuing to over and over again get clear. Well, where is what is my purpose? What is my value? What is the ultimate sort of mission or vision of myself in this world? And then the way it manifests can kind of come and go. Seems, and you're not, yeah, yeah. And, and you have. So you created the pink agenda. You ended up working in the Obama administration in various roles for for five years. I'm not going to lie, so jelly that you got to spend time with that man. <laughs> Amazing. I want to talk a little bit about then that how that grew into your sort of, I know you, after you left, you sort of moved into the consulting and entrepreneurial world and supportal. but I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, you know, I do a lot of work with health care companies and also corporate companies around grief culture in the workplace. And talk about a high-powered workplace, I can't imagine that the White House isn't the most high-powered workplace environment there is. When you look back, how do you think about what space you were given to carry that? I mean, at the time, it was Obama and, of course, Vice President, now President Biden, intimately experienced with grief in his life. But what do you think you... How did you experience grief in the workplace, I guess?
0: No, that's a great question. So let me actually go pre-Obama to my time in banking. I reached the point where you know we were taking my mom off of treatment. And I just wanted to be able to spend as much time with her as possible. And I went into the bank and I told my boss's boss that I needed to resign because I was just like, I can't do everything that's expected of me here. Plus like be there most of the time, which is where I really want to be. And again, this is 2007, 2008 remote work, not as much of a thing back then. You know what I mean? And they said, no, they said, we're not going to let you, unless you really want to leave, we're not going to let you leave because of this situation with your mom, which they knew about from the beginning. You know, I was transparent from my first interview there. They were like, if if you want to be here and if you want to still have work to do, we'll find a way to make this work. And they did. And, you know, like, that's not what people think about when they think of, And it was like a conservative, old school, you know, like Prescott Bush is one of the founding partners of the Modern Bank, kind of a place where, you know, youngest person, one of two girls, only Black person. But when it came to grief, yeah, and they were huge, huge supporters of the charity. Like they basically funded the charity in the early stages.
1: Yeah. Wow. That was, I did not see that turn coming in your story. And what a beautiful... Surprise,
0: yeah, it was. I mean, I looking back, it's like because my immediate boss, I love him still, super close with him and his wife. But the more senior people, you know, I mean, I was a kid, I was right, I was a kid.
1: They could have easily been like, okay, okay. bye, yeah,
0: no, they were like, absolutely not. And then with the Obama situation, super, super high powered, super intense, cutthroat, no room for error, you know, type work environment, but. I also feel like because of who he is and because of his values, I ended up surrounded by people who were really, really supportive. You know, whether it was a new friend who, like she and her mom took me and my cousin out to dinner for my mom's birthday one year, or while I was in the early stages of being in the administration, I found out that I have a health condition that is linked to infertility. And so, you know, when I found that out, of course, it was right after my dead mom's birthday. I was sent home from work. I was sent all sorts of food. And then they put together for the anniversary of my mom's passing, they put together a pub crawl that a bunch of us went on. And so, you know, I was honestly as supported as I could have been in that kind of work environment, I think.
1: That's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, that's, as I said, the most, I can only imagine the most high-powered work environment, really, that you get. But I think you really spoke to something there that is, you know, so many companies come to me and they're like, oh, what about our policies? And I'm like, yeah, policies are good. Policies are important. But it's the culture of a company. It's the kind of people you attract. It's the kind of empathy that you either hire for or train about. And that's what you're talking about. It wasn't, you didn't just list like, well, we had blank, blank, and blank policy, as you said, no here idea. was the culture, yeah. right, but it was the culture of the people, of the colleagues, of supervisors. And I think that's everything, right? You know, in terms of feeling supported. Yeah, no, because
0: whether we're talking about banking or Obama, you know, bank, the job I had in finance, it was just, it was such a hard time for me. You know, I was back at work two weeks after my mom died, because that's what I thought I was supposed to do. And every day I would show up. And I would start having a panic attack. And I would make my way to the basement where I knew there wouldn't be anyone. And then one of my girlfriends would come find me after like 30 minutes or so and bring me a latte and a cookie and a Xanax. I would redo my makeup and show up to work, you know, 30, 40 minutes late, most days for the first few months with no consequences.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And no questions, because they could also tell I didn't want to talk about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's so important. And I went back to work after two weeks after my husband died, which is a whole another story for another podcast. But I was the clinical director of a nonprofit, you know. And though I went back for lots of myriad reasons, including who was going to pay the bills in my house, among other things, culturally, you know, I had an amazing two like co female co-founders or executive directors and colleagues who, you know, would look at me and and I they could see the tears and they would be like, do you like, what do you what, what can I do? You know, and they were and it's really about the culture. So I appreciate you sharing those stories that it is possible even in these. So no excuses. If you're the boss of some big high powered company out there and you're listening, no excuses. When we come back, I asked Marissa to share what kind of support community she's had in the wake of her mother's death and even around the losses she's experienced with infertility. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Marissa Renee Lee. Hey there, don't forget, if you want to keep up with the latest on the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. But if you also want to get some behind-the-scenes news, information about my work with individuals and companies, the latest on the book that I'm writing, same title of this show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, head over to lisakefauver.com. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com and sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter. Why not so regular? Because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is my newsletter. I don't know if this is something that you're open to exploring, but, you know, I've had lots of different guests on my show, different kinds of losses, many of whom have shared, like myself, you know, multiple layers of losses, and some of which are more acknowledged sort of culturally, I would say, and some of which are more disenfranchised. And you just mentioned that this diagnosis of maybe some infertility issues, and I think you've shared before a little bit, about perinatal loss, which I think I have had guests on my show who have shared that. I had a woman come share her grief over a full-term stillbirth. and another woman who shared the grief of her over her medically terminated abortion. And I appreciate that's so important for lots of, of course, there's the politically charged reasons, but also, there are just certain types of grief. Culturally, And when I say culturally, I have listeners all over the world. I'm so grateful, but I'm thinking kind of, you know, Western, you know, U.S., frankly, white supremacist, (laughs) Protestant-y, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of culture, right? I think perinatal loss is one that was just so disenfranchised and misunderstood. Is there anything, you know, you can or don't have to tell the story of your loss in particular, but what do you think you learned about how people could or couldn't show up with you for you maybe in that loss versus you know, when your mom died or what do you think you know about that? Well,
0: first of all, I feel like I have to give a caveat. I feel like I have the most amazing like support system. Yeah, I have 11 awesome. roommates from college. We have all sorts of traditions and like mechanisms for supporting each other at various life milestones And when the terrible things happen, you know, like, we all go back to the chain where we were planning your birthday present and talk about you and your husband and, like, what we're going to do to be helpful. That's just the default. And then I have three really great friends from childhood and then just, you know, a bevy of other folks. Yeah. Like, I feel like I am very unique. I think the biggest difference for me between the two losses is I realized when I lost the pregnancy... That there were a lot of things that I did around the loss of my mom out of fear, shame, judgment, whether self-judgment or judgments imposed by others, that I just wasn't going to do anymore. I came to this conclusion as I was working on my book that I think in order for people to really, really let themselves grieve and sometimes, you know, fall apart a little bit. They need to feel safe. And I realized, looking back, my 25-year-old self, I wasn't secure economically. Like, I hadn't figured out my career. I didn't own my own home. I was a Black woman in, like, a super, super, super white conservative world. I didn't feel safe just falling apart because what was going to happen to me? What was going to happen to my career? What was going to happen to my rent? Like, you know, like all of the things. Whereas when we lost our pregnancy, I was 36, I think. Yeah, 36. I have my own business, have started a bunch of nonprofits, have clients who will do whatever I need them to do. If I'm going through something, I have a supportive husband. I have all of the things that imply safety with the exception of black skin in America. And I was committed to letting myself do whatever I needed to do to be okay and not apologizing for it and not hiding from it and not lying about my feelings. You know, like I was going to tell the truth and I was going to do whatever I needed to do to get myself back. And that's what I did. But I know, I know there are a lot of people who it made uncomfortable. And then I also know There are so many people who reached out to me when I started sharing about infertility and pregnancy loss who don't feel comfortable sharing because they don't feel supported. They don't feel like it's something that's appropriate to talk about. And I just think that's complete bullshit. Unfortunately, it's a part of life. When are we going to
1: recognize? I think one in three or one in four women have a miscarriage, right? I mean, it's...
0: Yeah, no, it's crazy. It's crazy. Out of the group of girls that I just listed multiple miscarriages. Like I can think of four off the top of my head and a medically terminated later pregnancy as well that was like a whole other different trauma and a couple of abortions because there's nothing wrong with that either. But exactly. we're, not, we're not allowed to grieve those things because they just aren't deemed acceptable. And I think so much of it goes back to how we treat women and women's bodies in this country.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, first of all, for sharing that and to joining me in this mission that I have of just making visible our universal right to grieve. Frankly, whatever the fuck we want to grieve. Like, however, you, we, want, however you, you want, whenever you want, whenever yeah. you want. And part of the mission of helping grief be less of a sneaky bitch, you know, that's the title of the show and my forthcoming book, is we got to start naming and making visible and giving permission for people to recognize and name that. And the more people do like you or like my brave guests who came on the show, the more other people feel held and seen and safe to do that. I just finished teaching my first semester at University of Texas, loss and grief to undergrads. And one of the biggest feedbacks, I've gotten lots of nice, beautiful notes from my students who are, by the way, these young adults. We're in good hands, right? They were in good hands and they are ready to go to the mat and get vulnerable. And I mean, it was like, I'm going to probably, that's probably going to be an entire piece I'm going to write next, but one of the things they said, because we were talking about different layers of grief, including abortion, which of course was relevant to some of the students, but also even grief around being moved, you know, like it's growing up or heartache or their first, you know, many of these young adults have just faced their first Babies. heartbreak and their heartless, but that's grief too. And just that, the so the feedback was just like, thank you for naming my grief. Thank you for making it safe for me to talk about it and to feel seen. And it doesn't take being an amazing author and entrepreneur like you or being having a host of the show or teaching a class. We can all do that for somebody else. We can all create safe space for somebody else.
0: Yeah, we need to normalize these things. And then I just have to tell you, you said the word permission. That is the title of the first chapter in Grief is Love. Oh. I think you're gonna like it.
1: Oh, I know I'm going to like it. We're going to talk about that next. I know we're going to like it. A permission giving is, I probably say that once a session with my clients that I work with because I really think grief is hard. But one of the things that makes grief harder, there's lots of things, but one of them is all the shoulds. I call them the shoulds of grief.
0: I will send you a galley of this book uh, (laughs) when we finish this conversation.
1: (laughs) Okay, we're gonna have that, and that's part of the thing is how do we give ourselves permission to grieve what we need to, and to grieve in the way that we need to. I'm telling you, you you're can't see like it. This we're book. like smiling. We're all, <laughs> I know. I want to talk about grief is love, but if you don't mind us a, a slight, it's maybe not a detour because it actually ties together some themes we talked about early on about the adultification of Black women in this country, but also something you just said about. Not feeling like you had safe space in that first grief event, you know, when your mom died, to grieve financially because of your status in this country as a Black woman and being in a workplace that is predominantly white male, I'm going to presume, yes. <laughs> in the financial world, you wrote a piece I came across, I think it's been a few years now, maybe in 2018 or 2019, but you wrote a piece for Vogue magazine about an exhibit, which I wish I would have known about because I would have gotten my butt to New York at New York's new museum, Grief and Grievance, Art and Mourning in America. And again, if I have your permission, I'd love to read you a piece from that because I think it really speaks to Making visible the extra layer of complication of grieving as a black person or an indigenous person in this country. so so, in this piece, which y'all should read it, I'll share this in the links for the show notes for today and where you can get her book and check out Supportal and all the amazing things she's doing. But in this piece, Marissa, you said, as I made my way through the museum, I kept asking myself the same question: What might we collectively achieve if this country loved black people? as much as it loves Black culture. What might be possible if we gave Black people space to grieve, space to acknowledge the trauma that comes with Black life in America, space to process the pain of racism? Who might we be free to become? In the absence of the safety and care that healing requires, these pieces from 37 Black artists remind me of the magic that is Blackness. No matter the grief we carry, we continue to produce light and move with joy. I'm telling you what, I read that, and my listeners probably already know this, heterosexual, cisgendered white woman here, in tears. I mean, having done and spent a lot of time in, in really starting to understand the impact of grief and institutional racism in this country and the history. I mean, they're, yeah. they're, they Sorry, are. I realize nobody else can see my hands. No, I know. <laughs> they are, they are hands woven together. Yeah. I mean, they are, the, they are foundational. Yeah. I think of Resmaa Manikam's book, you know, about my grandmother's hand and talking about that sort of the inborn grief and the intergenerational grief and trauma that is what it is to be Black in America. You wrote this piece clearly, obviously, it was long after your mom had died. It might have been in the time where you had that loss.
0: I think that exhibit was earlier this year. Maybe earlier, like April. Oh, okay, yeah. so
1: it was post-pregnancy yeah. so loss post too. Yeah, post-pregnancy
0: loss. You know, it's just one of those things where, as I wrote, you know, walking through the museum, there are so many beautiful, dramatic, creative, like really interesting, amazing pieces, but they all connect back to Black grief. And it was just, it was fascinating to think about what it really means to be black in America and how black people just continue to move forward in spite of the complete lack of acknowledgement of institutional racism. And I thought a lot about like Nicole Hannah Jones' work and Tanasi Coates and and just thinking, imagine what we could do and not just black people, because the thing is I think I actually think it is burdensome for white people who continue to carry on as though like race isn't an issue as though we live in a colorblind country as though racism doesn't matter and as though like this country really is you know this idyllic place where people can just pull themselves up by their bootstraps and be totally fine. Like, I think there's right. burden in that Oh, there's too. harm.
1: There's yeah. harm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's why I think
0: it's like, what might we collectively achieve? Like, not just what could, I mean, God, what Black people alone could do if racism was really acknowledged and dealt with is like phenomenal on its own. But
1: I really- Mind-blowing. Think we can't even imagine. But yeah. I yeah. think it's a question of what we all could do. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I just wanted to bring that piece, and I said I'll drop it in the show notes, because I think it was such an important reminder. Well, lots of things. Of course, it could be a whole other conversation, really, on grief. And I'm thinking about Brisha Wade's Grieving While Black. If you haven't read that, y'all, you should be definitely reading that book. But also, I think the thread to what we were talking about just previous to this, which is just the, the harm of disenfranchising someone's grief is so profound, On their ability to heal, but also then when we don't acknowledge somebody else's grief, we are robbing ourselves of the permission to give ourselves permission for whatever grief we might face, even if it's not, you know, a parallel grief. Yeah. I know we've spent some great time together, but I would be remiss if I didn't invite you to share a little bit with us about, you know, you just shared and this makes me feel better because I've been writing Grief as a Sneaky Bitch, which I hope will be coming out in 2022 for a long time. So I feel better knowing that you decided you were going to write Grief as Love, you know, practically a decade ago. But tell me about what it feels like now as you are about to sort of give birth to this piece of work. What did you learn through the process? What do you I know that's going to be a whole another show. Yeah. Maybe there's going to be a part two to this conversation, but at least tell us what it feels to be bringing grief as love to life and maybe even what it has you thinking about about Lisa, about your mom.
0: I mean, honestly, it's surreal. I wrote in a journal entry in August 2008, I'm going to write a New York Times bestselling book about grief and it's not going to be super sad. It actually might make people feel better. Like that was the journal entry. Yeah. And here we are. I wrote an article in 2020 that went kind of viral and ended up with an agent and in six weeks put together a proposal and had a publisher a month after that and started writing a book a little over a year ago. And you can now buy it. The seed was planted a long time ago, but the actual actions that happened have happened very quickly. And it's sort of, it's surreal, it's overwhelming. I feel super, super grateful. And I think it's a really good book. I did a lot of revising because I realized the first version that my editor and I put together was really about grief and the various grief experiences that you might go through. Whereas this book is really about healing. Like, what does it look like? What are the ingredients? Required if you're going to live a full and joyful life after experiencing a devastating loss. That is what the book is about.
1: I love that. I love that kind of... People know, people have heard me say before, I have a a motto in life, also currently tattooed on my body. And I always said currently because it's a tattoo, so it's not going anywhere. (laughs) An acronym that I've said forever, which is AFCO, another fucking growth opportunity. And it really speaks to how we can have hard things happen to us and then just be in the hard thing. And we can have hard things happen to us and have that be the vehicle to healing, to kind of being in the world at another level, at a next level, which I think is really what you're doing, not just in this book, but in your work. And I feel that's what I'm doing, living in the purpose of my work too. So I appreciate that. And you just said something about grief is love being about I don't know if you use the word joy, but kind of it's about the healing and kind of enjoying life. And I do think if anybody's ever questioning, first of all, get your copy of Grief is Love, y'all. But second of all, as scary as it is to do the work of grief or kind of face our pain, I say this often. And I wonder if you think this is true, too, Marissa. I mean, I would do anything, of course, to get Eric back. Like if I could wave a magic wand, of course I would.
0: Yeah. No, I always say you can have my right arm. Like, yes, yes.
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay. Assuming that's not going to happen. I think I experience more moments of joy and delight and amazement in my life now than I did before. And losing my husband wasn't the only hard thing than I did before. And I think it's because I've done this healing work of grief. And I was always kind of a half glass full kind of person before, but this work has allowed me like, I go on walks and just sometimes I'm like dumbfounded stop at a flower growing out of a crack in the sidewalk. I mean, seriously, like I have this way of kind of voraciously. You have
0: a different commitment to being present, I think, or at least I do. And
1: to being joyful. Yes. And to being present. Did you feel that way when you went into writing that book? Is that the message that you felt like you came to as you finished the book?
0: No, I went into writing that book being like, holy shit, how am I going to write enough words for an entire book? Okay, Of course, on the (laughs) other side, I now seen I've probably thrown away enough words that they could fit into another entire book. The process really, it required a lot of self-reflection and analysis because it's not a memoir. You're not getting like, this is my mom. This is what she looked like. This is how amazing she was. And then she died. Like, here is a theme. Here's a tool. Here's an ingredient that you need in order to live a full life. And there's a chapter on joy because joy is
1: absolutely a part of it. Absolutely. I love that. And if you're, by the way, listening and you're real early in the grief, feel free in your mind to tell us to both fuck off because you're not ready yes. to think about joy. Yes, like I okay. totally, if that's somebody okay. has said joy to me in the weeks after my husband's death, I would have possibly punched them in the face. I mean, yes. not really, but, but kind I don't of. encourage violence. But kind of metaphorically, I would have punched them in the face. So I think it's important to recognize that and I think it's important to honor that. And just to hear Marissa's beautiful words, you're going to read this in her book, Grief is Love, that joy is there for the taking when you're ready. Yes. Yes. When you're ready. Don't force it. It's not
0: meant to be faked. This isn't, you know, a make lemonade out of lemons, toxic positivity nonsense. It's just eventually you will find your way back to joy.
1: Yeah. And they're going to be in little moments and they're going to be in little doses, but they will be. Marissa Renee Lee, thank you so much for joining me today on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I know we could have probably had (laughs) three times the amount of conversation, but hopefully this will be the beginning of other conversations to come. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and your wisdom and your heart with us.
0: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, my friends, I did not want this conversation to end. And truth be told, Marissa and I continue to connect over our shared experiences and interests. I appreciate the way she honestly and frankly examined her own coping strategies around grief. The truth she told about the pressure she felt to be an adult in the room. And the way she's transformed her own hardships into supporting others through the Pink Agenda and Supportal. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we have a lot in common, so this won't likely be the last time you hear us together. You can learn more about Marissa and her forthcoming book, Grief is Love, by visiting www.MarissaReneeLee.com. I'll drop a link in the show notes for today's episode, too. I want to thank Giles Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today. I want to thank that team over at StudioPod for helping me produce it, too. And I want to thank you, my listeners, for showing up for today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Marissa Renee Lee. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.